Have you been scrolling through many, many, many film podcasts thinking there's far too many of these? Or have you been thinking there's something missing? There's something we're not quite getting. A waffler from Northern England reviewing films, for example. Welcome to oh, Review It Yourself. No politics, no pandering, no point. I'm not going to lie to you guys, this one's going to be a long one. There's no there's no covering up, there's no pretending, there's no lying to you saying, oh yeah, it's only going to be 20 minutes long. It isn't. It's discussing a long film. I know a lot of trivia about this film and about the subject it covers. So strap yourselves in for this one. Save it for a long drive or something like that. Or if you do like longer podcasts, you'll like this one. I personally want to see a podcast that's over an hour. I think, oh, do I have the time? But I suppose you could split them down. And can you see why I'm not a salesman? That's a pro, a pro, a good, uh, good start, that isn't it? Listen to this; it's going to be long as hell. But hopefully, it should be interesting. And if you've listened to my um, podcasts before, you know what to expect. Uh, basically, I, I verbally butcher the plot of a film, throwing a few bits of trivia. Try not to have a rant. That's about it. Well, is rant the right word? Probably not. I mean, I don't get angry or anything. But, uh, yeah. Sit back and enjoy this one. Today's review will be Titanic. So James Cameron's 1997... Um, absolute classic so the film begins well I mean for a start if you haven't seen this film where have you been for the past you know 20 odd years but um, either if you have we'll go through it anyway bit bit of a pointless sentence there but never mind okay so it starts off with this kind of old footage of uh, the Titanic leaving uh, Southampton on its maiden voyage, so it, it's like sepia toned and slowed down, like old footage would have been from that time because of the frames per second. Um, bit of trivia straight off in there with the trivia. Um, there is actual real life film footage of the Titanic that was filmed, I believe, in Dry Dock in Belfast, but I don't think it was found until more oh, the 2000s at least, so they didn't have it for this. So James Cameron recreated it. Uh, well, he didn't recreate that footage. He recreated what the ship would have looked like. It's just at the time they didn't realise there was footage of it. And and a lot of people, trivia, a lot of people, if they think of um, the Titanic, they might think Victorian times, but it was actually Edwardian. And you see, and you get the beautiful um, kind of orchestral, uh, with people's voices, uh, music at the start of it. The soundtrack by James Horn is absolutely outstanding. And you see two submersibles uh, obviously diving down towards Titanic. And this is where we meet Brock Lovett, played by uh, the late, great Bill Paxton. And he, he says, take you know take this, take her up and over the bow. So they go up over the front of the, of, of the ship. And... They used real footage interspersed here. Now, the trick is, 
whenever you see two of the submersibles together, it's recreated with a model and you know in fog and that kind of thing to simulate what underwater would be like because you, you can't have two subs that close together. So, for example, with the beginning shot where there's two submersibles going down, they'd never dive that close together because it's not safe. Obviously, it's it's the ocean. Even at that depth, there's currents and things. You, would, you wouldn't want to have two subs that close to each other in case they collided. And they've got people in them, of course. Anyway, um, and he's talking about... So Brock's talking about, you know, seeing her gets me every time, and he gives this kind of documentary spiel about, you know where she landed after a long fall from above. And the guy who, the guy who was with him in the sub, Lewis, says, uh, oh, you're so full of uh, you're so full of it, boss. And he laughs and they turn the camera off. And you basically get that kind of, they're down there looking for something. And Brock's like a treasure hunter. And he's saying, you know, the ship's two and a half miles down. And they launch Duncan and Snoop Dogg. So these are two remotely operated vehicles. And they take these to the uh, ship, which is something that James Cameron's actually done. Because you can get these little, these little remote control vehicles into parts of the ship that you couldn't you couldn't get anything else, because they're uh, they're small enough. And you know you you see chandeliers, you see there's a bit where you see the the ocean floor and you see like leather trousers, and shoes, and this is taken from obviously. It's not real footage this part, but it that's taken from what you see at the bottom of the uh, of the ocean. You know, there's no skeletons or anything like that. That's that's long gone. Um, oh, the tone of this, by the way, might be a little bit depressing at times, but stick with me on this. And the shoes, because of the way that the the leather and the trousers and the shoes would were treated, the the microorganisms at that depth don't eat away at those things. So they find lots of shoes in pairs together so that they reckon that's where the bodies landed and all that's left of the you know the shoes and leather trousers i told you it'd get told you the tone would be a bit anyway um and then you see a doll's head now this is a recreation of something that um robert ballard the guy who discovered the titanic in 1986 he another bit of trivia whilst it was a secret mission for the u.s government or the u.s navy to go and find two nuclear submarines, the USS Thresher and the USS Scorpion, if I remember correctly. And he, he said, yeah, I'll do that. I'll go find them, but I want any leftover time to find, you know, try and find the Titanic because those submarines are in the Atlantic, the North Atlantic. And he did, and I think he had a week to search and he found the Titanic using techniques he mastered finding the other uh, submarines which was namely not looking for the ship itself which sounds quite strange but his idea was well i'll look for the debris field because the debris the debris field will be a lot bigger than the actual ship itself which worked and anyway <laughs> drag us back to the film and you know you see that um they're, they're going to this room and they they see all this pile pile of wood on the floor and they flip it over using one of the subs like with these remote control hands now this is quite hollywood and it's something that james cameron admits himself that you couldn't use a submersible even with little arms uh, little kind of robotic arms to throw heavy wood it wouldn't work but obviously and then james cameron you see them hauling the the safe back onto the ship 
with like a little crane like on the back of the ship. And James Cameron says, yeah, like, how did they get this massive, heavy, you know, iron safe up to those depths? He said, but he said, look, it's a film. You've got to use a bit of artistic license every now and again. And Brock's like, it's payday, boys. And then uh, there's very little, little archaeological care taken. They literally use a buzz saw, a circular saw, take the front off. And Brock's just like scooping stuff out with his hands and like bits of paper falls out and then that but there's no diamond he pulls like a folder like a leather folder out and throws it and there's a guy behind him like no diamond and it turns out they're searching for this diamond they should have been in that safe and the conservationists are there you know the archaeologists are working on the on this file and they see the image of a naked woman with the necklace around her neck dated april 14th 1912 uh and signed jd which looks surprisingly like a young Kate Winslet. Um, anyway, so, and on the news that they saw a lady and her granddaughter here, um, this, like a news report of, of, of Brock Lovett, and he's getting interviewed about, you know, people are calling you a grave robber and this, that, and the other. And he says, you know, we're finding things. I've got my team here doing things that I've never done before. I look at this piece of paper that's been underwater for 84 years or whatever it is. He says, should, have, should this have remained at the bottom of the sea forever? And obviously all he's bothered about is because it helps him, it may help him narrow down finding this diamond, like where it was. And she, obviously Rose says, or to, who was the uh, older lady, she says, I'll turn that up to her granddaughter Lizzie. And then you see Brock on the ship and he's they're launching some submersibles and the guy, a guy comes up to him and says, Brock, you need to take this phone call. And he's like, mate, you need to take this. Obviously, they're Americans, so they don't say mate. But, well, I mean, I've no doubt some Americans say mate, but they Anyway, sidetracked on semantics or linguistics, either or. He says, like, look, mate, you need to take this call. And he takes the call, and Rose is on the other end of the, la- on the, other end of the phone, and she says, I was just wondering if you'd found the heart of the ocean yet, Mr. Lovett. And obviously, he's stunned because everybody who's supposed to know about this. Uh, locket I was going to say um, this diamond should either be dead or uh, on that ship and then you see a helicopter oh yeah he says you've got my attention Rose do you know who the woman in the picture is she's like oh yes the woman in the picture is me and you see the helicopter flying towards the ship and then Lewis who was the guy in the sub with him earlier who's brilliant I believe James Cameron wrote this for the, the actors called Lewis they wrote it for him especially and he's saying she's a liar. She's she's, you know, she's some nutcase seeking money or publicity. God only knows what. Like that Russian babe anesthesia, uh, which is American for anesthetic, I think. Uh, he means anest- uh, Anastasia, doesn't he? Um, and which is quite funny. And then he's Brock says to him, "Look, everybody's supposed to be dead or on this boat who knows about this, but she knows." And he says, look, I've done the math. I've done the maths. I haven't done the maths. Well, he's, I've done the math on this, I think he says, because he's American. And he says, he says, look, I've done, I've already been back and looked through this, this woman's history. You know, she, you know, um, if she was Rose DeWitt De Bucare, who died when she was 17 on the Titanic, she'd be over 100 now. And he says, 101, Brock says 101 next month. And he's like, fine. So she's a very old goddamn liar. 
you know, I've do, I've already done the history on this woman all the way back to the twenties. She was called when she was an actress. There's your first clue, Sherlock. And he says she was called Rose Dawson back then. She moved to Cedar Rapids and punched out a couple of kids. And what I know, uh, her husband's dead. And for what I know, Cedar Rapids is dead. And uh, can you tell I've seen this film quite a few times? I can pretty much quote it. And he's saying, look, she knows. Anyway, the helicopter lands and Rose gets out with all these all these trunks in front of her and she's like in a wheelchair and the the, the guys help her down and Lewis says, God, she, she do, doesn't exactly travel light, does she? And Rose is like, look, I have to, uh, I have, to have my pictures when I travel. And I mean, God, they've even got like a, a goldfish bowl because it gets handed to Brock on the ship, which is quite funny. And Brock goes down with Lewis to the to the staterooms. You're listening to oh, review it yourself. I've added that in because I think I don't think I've said that yet. But welcome, if you're still here. Yeah. So she talks about the heart of the ocean, and she says, "Oh, it was a dread, dreadful, heavy thing. I only wore it this once." And then her granddaughter's like, "Are you sure this is you, Nana?" And she's like. Of course it's me, dear. Wasn't I a dish? And <laughs> sorry for the American accent again. I can't, I can't help it. Sometimes you can't. And Brock obviously tests her at this point. He says, oh, I tracked this down through old insurance records. He said, can you tell uh, through an old claim? Can you tell me who the claimant was, Rose? And she says, I, I'd imagine it was someone named Hockley. And he says, that's right. Nathan Hockley, Pittsburgh Steel Tycoon. His brother... Um, he took the insurance out before his brother, um, Caledon Hockley, sailed on the Titanic with his fiancée, you. And you can see he, he believes her now. You know, he's been sceptical, but he believes her. And then she, he says, you know, it was, it was the insurance claim was filed right after the sinking, so the, the diamond must have gone down with the ship. And he says, can you see the date? That means, and Lewis says, that means if your gran is who she says she is, she was wearing the diamond the day the Titanic sank. And uh, he says, oh, we found some of these things in your stateroom. So there's like this little handheld mirror. And she says, oh, the, the reflection's changed a bit. And there's like a hairpin butterfly, uh, a hairpin piece that kind of comb hairpin thing. I don't know what they're called. That goes in your hair, holds your hair together. And she she looks quite emotional at this. And Brock says, are you ready to go back to Titanic? And... And then there's a dead cheeky bit, which James Cameron admits himself that he then shows the, the audience the science of what will happen later. So basically the science, um, well, basically the way the Titanic sank has been heavily revised since 1997 when they made the, uh, well, 96, whatever, when they made the film. Um, so for example, now they reckon that it's split apart between just in front of the third funnel uh, not between the third and fourth funnel, and they reckon that the ship broke at a much shallower angle and actually, well, turned and um, capsized. Well, not capsized, but went down in a different way. But obviously James Cameron just talked about this when they re-released Titanic in 2012 in 3D. I went to see it. It was brilliant. And he said, oh, I, we weren't going to go back and change it because they wouldn't be able to anyway. Not without God knows how many hundreds of millions. And anyway, so that you have Lewis saying, you know, the Titanic sails along 
bumps along the iceberg, punching holes up like Morse code, dit, 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 uh, along the side below the waterline. And all the front compartments started to flood and went back and back. And the ship went up, cracked in half and sank. And she says, oh, thank you for that fine forensic analysis, Mr. Brodine. But unfortunately, the you know, the experience was somewhat different. She saw all the roles played by Gloria Stewart. She's saw she's smart. You can see she's very switched on. Even though she's nearly 101, she's very switched on. And she's very, she, she cuts him down to size. Not by, you know, humiliating him or anything, but she does the same with Brock. They're both kind of the beginning treating it kind of like a, just this old woman, you know, this old woman who, who may or may not be who she says she is. And she, with how genuine she is and how she she talked, she convinces them and puts them in the place when they need to be put in the place. And uh, which bit was it? Oh, yeah. So she sees, so she's in like a, a room with a lot of the, the crew that are there. And, and in this room, there's monitors with footage of the ship, and she sees the corridor, and she sees one of the doors that are there. One of these are near iron cast doors that would have had glass in. And she remembers the, the men opening it for her, the kind of the stewards. And she she gets a bit emotional and her granddaughter's like, oh, I want to take her back to the stateroom. And she's like, no. And he say, she says, it's been 84 years. And Brock's like, you know, just try and remember anything, anything at all, as if she could forget. And he say, she says, do you want to hear this or not, Mr. Lovett? And she says, you know, I can still smell the fresh paint, the bed's... The beds had never been used. The plates had never been used. The beds had never been slept in. The Titanic was called the Ship of Dreams, and it was. It really was. And then the wreck behind her transforms into the ship at birth at Southampton, whilst you know everybody's making their way on board. And the class system of the Edwardian age is, is prevalent straight away. You know, you can see the first class. They kind of stroll on like royalty with dogs, and they get welcomed. Whereas the third class have to go through lice inspection, see if they've got lice. And you see a guy getting his beard checked. And obviously we see Rose, uh, 17-year-old Rose, played by Kate Winslet. Her fiancé, Carl, played by Billy Zane. Um, Ruth, who's Rose's mother, played by Francis Fisher. Uh, what's his name? Lovejoy, played by David Warner. That's everyone you see at that point. And she says, you know, outwardly, I was everything a, uh, a well-brought-up girl should be. Inside, I was screaming. And then at that point, the ship's horn goes off, which I think was one, and the ship was about to leave. Um, they've actually, a bit trivia, they've got, they recovered this uh, one, well, yeah, I think it was one. They recovered the ship, the Titanic's horn from, uh, which was mounted on the forward funnel, I believe. And they've got it in a museum. I think it's somewhere in America. I don't know if it I don't know if it tours. It it doesn't tour. I don't think so. I think it did like a little tour when they first recovered it. It's been recovered a while, but you can find footage of it. I think on YouTube and no doubt other places where they tested this in front of a big crowd in America. Any anyway, um. So then, yeah, 
uh, and then you, it goes to this little pub um, and you can see the Titanic through the window and there's Jack and Fabrizio. So obviously Jack's American, Fabrizio's Italian. Did I just say obviously? I've been doing so well, not to say that word. And I need to stop saying basically. So we see uh, Jack's played by Leonardo DiCaprio, Fabrizio's played by Danny Nucci, and they're having a game of poker with, I think they're meant to be Swedish, I can't remember. Apologies if it's not Swedish. Uh, they're playing with uh, these foreign guys anyway, and they're playing poker, and Jack gets, a f and one of the guys has bet his Titanic tickets, and Jack wins with a full house. And the date's April 10th, 1912. And the guy's fuming. So he punches the, the guy who bet the tickets. You know, he's like, you moron. I can't believe you bet, you know, you bet our tickets. Because I think I read the translation somewhere. Told you I know a lot about this film. And they, they run through the crowd. They, they run up the gangplank as it's been removed. And they say to one of the officers, oh, can we come aboard? And they say, have you been through the inspection queue? And Jack says, yes, of course. Anyway, we're Americans. We don't have lice. And they jump on board. And you see the ship. Um, you know, he starts waving. And they say, oh, who are you waving to? Like, nobody. That's not the point. And you see the back of the ship, Titanic, Liverpool. And it, this is a, something that people aren't, sh don't, aren't aware of. Uh, trivia again. People wonder why, when the Titanic was built in Belfast by uh, by Howland and Wolf shipbuilders, she sailed from Southampton to Cherbourg in France, then to Queensland, Queenstown, sorry, um, like Southern Ireland, Ireland, and then she sailed on for New York. Why does she have Liverpool on the back? Well, that that's where the ship was registered, so that's what uh, the name place that goes on the back. Anyway, so you see the tugs start to pull the ship out to sea and you see a shot of like a really small, well, it's not small, it's a fair size, you know, like a sailing ship and a Titanic just towers over, towers over, towers over this little boat. And you see Jack and Fabrizio go down at the steerage bunk, uh, like their bunk, it really right in the at bottom of the bowels of the ship, um, below the water, like below the waterline. And Cal's getting shown his private promenade deck. And Rose has these paintings and he's like, oh, they're cheap, they're a waste of money. You know, So you can see she's into art. And one of the maids says, oh, what's the artist's name? And she says, oh, something Picasso. And Cal's like, look, he'll never amount to anything. And obviously it's Pablo Picasso. And some of the paintings are actually still, well, they never went on the ship, never went, never went anywhere near it. But they were found... They weren't found lying about. They were. They're in, they're in museums and things. So they didn't go down with the ship, and it's all I'm saying. And James Cameron has basically said, Oh, I wrote it as if Carl got cheap copies. And he does actually say, Oh, at least they were cheap. And then we meet uh, the unsinkable Molly Brown, or Margaret Molly Brown, um, whose husband struck gold out west in America. And she's what? Uh, Rose's mum, who they're like old money. Uh, she call like they call like new money. So even in the realms of the wealthy, 
there's still these different class classes, if you like. And a chair, well, and she gets on at Cherbourg, and you see a brief shot of the Titanic with the tender nomadic in front. Now, this tender is actually it's been restored. It was bought. It was bought and restored for the Titanic centenary in 2012, and it is in Belfast at the Titanic Museum over there. And it's the last remaining White Star Line ship in the world. Uh, obviously, White Star Line merged with Cunard in 1934, who phased out a lot of the old ships. And then eventually it became Cunard White Star, and then eventually they got rid of the White Star part and Cunard. So the White Star line doesn't exist anymore. But I think uh, Cunard's kept, they, they refer to things as the White Star service, as this kind of homage to their once rival. And Jack and Fabrizio then go to the bow, which is crew only whilst the ship's sailing. And then you see this beautiful, like almost like a marketing shot, if you will. I think that's how James Cameron de described it to the people who rendered it in CGI. He said, uh, what I want you to do, I want you to make it as if it was a cruise liner now and they were doing an advert for it. So you get this long sweeping shot down the ship. And the CGI is brilliant. It's a little bit clunky on the people. And there's a part where, see if you can find this when you watch the film, there's a woman walking along and she's got like a little short hat on, but behind her, a shadow's got this massive brimmed hat. So keep an eye out for that. And uh, so, and obviously, you see, um, but obviously, people are a little bit clunky. The CGI is not perfect, but it's 1997, so I let them off for that. And then you see dolphins jumping in front of the ship, and the captain's having tea served to him. I think it's Earl Grey with lemon. <laughs> Another bit of trivia for you there. And obviously, and then it, it switches to the, the men. So the stoker men in the hall, right at the bottom of the ship, shoveling the corner of the boilers to keep everything going. So again, just um, highlighting the the class system of that world, well, of any world. And obviously, this is the bit where Jack says, "You know, I'm the king, king of the world," and because you know, and they are quite happy because you know they've they've won this won these tickets, and America's you know the land of opportunity. They're on the biggest ship in the world. Uh, you know, I mean, the, the, every now and again, there's kind of corn, the odd corny line, but it is a film and it is supposed to be entertaining. And then we see that there's no smoke coming from the uh, the fourth funnel, which was in fact a dummy trivia again, because they wanted it to look like the Mauritania and the Lusitania, which were Cun uh, Cunard's rival ships. And they, it, they just put it there to be kind of aesthetically pleasing, if you will. But it was actually used to ventilate the ship, and it had a kennel in it, cats and like cats and dogs and pets, because John Jacob Astor apparently, uh, like broke it open during the sinking, because I think something like four dogs survived the sinking, only small ones I think that people could carry. But I always think that's a bit of a strange thought that all those people died and so still some dogs survived. I'm, I'm not saying that's wrong. I, I'm just. It's just a very strange thought when you think about it. Anyway, so then we see Bruce Ismay, who's played by Jonathan Hyde, and Thomas Andrews, who's played by Victor Garber. So these are uh, real characters. And Cal's there with Rose, and he orders her food for her. And 
and then asks her afterwards, oh, you like lamb, right? Uh, and he's, he's perfectly civil about it, but you see this class, you see the class system, not the class system, the, the, the way that it was between the sexes at that time. Very much that the man uh, made, made the decisions and the w- women were just set dressing, not not to be uh, condescending, but, they, you know, they, I mean, for a start, they had like five changes of clothes a day or something ridiculous like that. I mean, they dressed for dinner, they dressed for, and they were expected to, to be a certain way and honour honor their husbands, if you will. I mean, obviously this, this, and you do see that she, Rose has got those stirrings of, you know, and it, of wanting to be freer and have more personal freedom. Um, I mean, this is only a few years, but the, before the suffragette movement really starts, you know, it starts to gain ground towards the, the end of the uh, the end of the decade and you get the vote for women not long after although I mean it was the vote for women who were married and over a certain anyway so it wasn't all women but that's by the by and obviously after the sec- after the first world war and obviously you get oh, I've said it again stop saying obviously the <laughs> the ship's Irish uh because Jack and Fabrizio meet a guy called Tommy, who's Irish, and he says, "Oh, it's a... and Fabrizio's like it's English, no?" And he's like, "No, it's it's Irish. It was built in Ireland. Fifteen thousand Ironmen built the ship. You know, sawed as a rock." And then you see the first class dogs getting taken to the third class part of the ship for uh, to get. Well, he he says to go to the toilet. One of the characters, and Jack says, "Well, it helps us, you know, remember where we rank in the scheme of things." And then this, the ship was like this. The Titanic was segregated into first class, second class, and third or steerage class uh, sections of the ship. You know, the, the first class passengers generally got, obviously their areas were beautiful. Second class were, were were kind of a middle ground for professionals, but people who couldn't pay an awful lot. And the third class was immigrants, essentially, because that they were you know emigrating to America. You're leaving everything behind and it, uh, because it you know it was people remember people who don't know a lot about it know about you know the richest man in the world on it and all these beautiful grand staircases and that kind of thing but it was a it was an immigrant ship that's what it was built for it was built for that transatlantic voyage uh, transatlantic voyage uh, that transatlantic journey between you know the old world and the new world in new america and so yeah so we see and this we see more of this as the film goes on, because it's it's a surprisingly layered film. You know, you see, people do dismiss it being a bit corny, a love story, you know. But it is it's very layered, and it's not hard to see. It's not one of these films that you really have to kind of um, you you really have to dig deep. It, it's it is right there when, but not in your face. That was a really bad point. <laughs> All I mean is it's it's layered and it's oh stop saying it's layered. Get on with it. So anyway, so Jack then sees Rose because she's left the little like dinner bit they're having because Cal stops her smoking. Because she's smoking like one of those Cruella Deville things. She's the only way to describe it, you know, the long pipe that you put your cigarette in the end of. And the mother, the mother's there, and the mum says to her, "You know, you know, I don't like that rose." And Carl's like, "She knows." And he takes the cigarette out, and stubs it out. Anyway, so she 
she's left and Cal got and Jack Caesar and uh from the th- the third class section which is Laura and Tommy says to him No oh, keep dreaming by her you know it'll take angels to come out of your backside to get next to the likes of her and it turns out you know the mum talks to Rose and you know you figure out excuse me you figure out that Rose is trapped you know she has to marry Cal who's going to inherit millions because you know they must ensure her family's inheritance uh, mom says do we know your father died he left us with a legacy of debt hidden by a good name and th- that name's the only card we have left to play it's a great match with hockley and it'll ensure our survival and the ma- the mom's great in this film uh francis fisher i believe it is she's brilliant in this film and anyway so why do I feel like I've missed a belt here? Oh, anyway. No, I haven't. So then she goes to dinner and she, she just sat there. And you, you could see how distraught she is. And she, because she says to him on the night before, you know, this isn't fair. And she says, you know, of course it's not fair. Oh, no, no, that's not till later on. Sorry, I'm mixing it up. Anyway. um, So she runs to the stern, which is the steering section, past Jack having a smoke on a bench. And she she's going to throw herself off the ship she climbs over the railing and i wrote down kate winslet really suits red hair she does suits her a lot anyway in my opinion and he comes up to her and says you know don't do it and then she's like don't presume to tell me what to do i w- what i will i will not do and you can see she's just been sick of being bossed around by a man at this point because of the the way things were then and she feels pressured into the marriage. Because it's not like she doesn't like Cal. You know, she, she, I wouldn't say she shows a lot of affection for him, but it's certainly not like Rose doesn't give any impression that she, she, she hates the situation. She knows she has to do it for her family. And obviously it's not fair, but she, he, do, he doesn't treat her badly at this point or anything like that. He, he worships the ground she walks on, really. In, as much away as a man could do at that time. And um, he says, you know, you'll be killed if you jump over. It's, it's freezing. And she says, how cold is it? And he says, well, I fell through some thin ice once. You know, I grew up in Wisconsin and uh, near Chippewa Falls. And he, he says, I fell through thin ice when I was ice fishing with my dad. And she's like, I know. She's like, I know what ice fishing is. And she's proper exaggerated. And he's like, sorry, you know, you seem more of an indoor girl. And he says, look, you know, water that cold down there will, you know, stab you like a thousand knives hitting you all over your body. And this is a from a quote from a survivor who was actually pulled from the water, who said that's that's what it felt like, that you know, that cold water. And he says, you know, give, give me a hand. And as she's climbing back over, she slip, her, her shoe slips on one of her dresses. And he, well, just before this bit, he says to her, um, she says to her, she says to her, he says to her, nah, it's gone. It's absolutely gone. What was I talking about? Doobie 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 doo. Oh, yeah, yeah. Um, so she say, he says, I'm Jack Dawson. She says, I'm Rose DeWitt Bucare. And she says, oh, he says, I'll have to get you, you know, I'll have to get you to write that one down. Because it is a hell of a name. So basically, he saves her, pulls her back over the rail. 
And obviously, whilst he was talking to her before, trying to stop her from, you know, throwing throwing herself off, um, he took his shoes off and his jacket, saying he was going to jump in after her. I'd love to know whether he actually would have done. But never mind, that'd have ruined the love story, wouldn't it? If he just stood there and thought, well... Pff. um, So... She obviously she screams as to pulling her over as he's pulling her over, so over back over the rail on the ship. So some crewmen like run to that side of the ship, uh, well to the stern of the ship, the back of the ship. So when they get there, obviously she's on the floor because obviously he's ended up on top of her because he pulled her over the rail, and she's like shaking with fear. Uh, he's got his shoes and his jacket off, you know, her skirts ridden up a little bit, and obviously. To them, it looks like he's tried to assault her. So, obviously, he's a third-class passenger. She's a first-class woman. They put, you know, two and two together and make 500. And they shout, you know, fetch the master at arms, who was like kind of like the policeman on board the ship. And then Carl's there, and he's like, you filth, what made you think you could put your hands on my fiance?" And she obviously makes up this cockable story about, oh, I was leaning over to see the propellers. And one of the guys is like, women and machinery should not mix. And so she she plays them both um, and gets Jack out of it by acting as like, you know, the silly little woman. I was just trying to see the big machines. And obviously, I'll stop saying, obviously, I've done it again. Now it says, perhaps something for the boy. And Carl says to Lovejoy, I think a 20 will do it. And she's like, not happy with this. And he says, why don't you join us for dinner? And you can tell he obviously he's wanting to humiliate Jack. And because he says to Lovejoy, this ought to be interesting. So he's like done it out of like sheer inquisitiveness of, oh, what's it going to be like? Because he wants he thinks he'll be able to show Jack up and be like a lot cleverer than him. A lot more clever than him. Clever is not a word. And anyway, so Jack bums a smoke from Lovejoy and then he says, Oh. So who's like Carl's valet slash bodyguard. I think the backstory from the trivia that I read was that Carl's dad employed Lovejoy as an ex-police officer to kind of look after his son, stop him getting into trouble. And then he says, oh, it's funny you slipped so suddenly. Well, she slipped so suddenly, but you had a chance to take off your jacket and your shoes. And then you see Carl back in the room, back in the room. Three, two, one. You're back in the room, and she's at her like night night table, like dressing table. Sorry, and she's like getting herself ready for bed. And he says, "You know, I know you've been melancholy." And it, this is where he shows her the diamond, and she's like, "Oh, it's overwhelming." And he's like, "It's Le Coeur de la Mer, which is the heart of the ocean, because it's supposed supposedly one of Louis the Louis the Sixteenth crown jewels type thing." And and he says to me, you know, we're royalty, Rose. We, you know, we are. So there's that expectation there. And he says to me, you know, there's nothing I'd deny you if you'd not deny me. You know, open your heart to me, Rose. And she, like, spreads her fingers over the locket. So as I was saying earlier, it's not like she doesn't... I don't know if she loves him, but there's, it's not like she hates him. There's an affection there. And then the... Basically, what happens next? Stop saying basically. <laughs> it's because I can't. This is this comes from not being able to read my own writing, because I literally can't read what it says next. Um. Oh yeah, sorry. 
So Jack's talking to the Jack and Rose are on the boat deck and they're talking about how uh, he's talking about how his parents died and he's just been, you know, a tumbleweed blown in the wind. And she thanks him for his discretion. And he's thinking, you know, she says, oh, I know what you're thinking. Poor little rich girl. What could what could have happened to make, you know, uh, what does she know about Mizzy? And he says, no, I, I wondered what could have happened to you and make you not think you were a way out. And she's saying, you know, 500 invitations have gone out for the wedding. All the Philadelphia High Society will be there. And she says, I feel like I'm stood in a crowded room screaming at the top of my lungs and no one hears me. And he just says, well, do you love the guy or not? And she's like, well, you're being very rude. And he's like, well, it's a simple question. Do you love him or not? And a bit of trivia, you can actually spot hills in the background. But I'm not going to tell you where during this scene. And then they have a bit of a tiff. Uh, she grabs his leather folders like, what are you, an artist or something? And she starts looking at his drawings. And obviously they are bloody good drawings. Uh, and a lot of them are of naked women. And she says, oh, I, I didn't think much of them in Paris. And, you know, there's the whole bit where he, he talks about certain people he's seen. And she says, oh, you know, you you see people, you've got a gift. And then you see um, Rose's man with uh, the Countess of Roth, who was a, a real, char- uh, real character, a real life person on the ship. And they're kind of having an afternoon tea. And then they say, oh, we'll get up. We, you know, here's that vulgar brown woman. And then she catches up with them. And then you have, uh, as they get up and leave, they pass a table with them, um, which is quite a, this is quite a controversial scene coming up. Not not the mams and that having tea. That wouldn't be controversial. They're English. Of course, they're going to have tea. The controversial scene is where Ismay is seen to put pressure on Captain Smith to, to speed up and to get to New York on Tuesday night and surprise them all. And saying, you know, that this, this, um, this, uh, good God, get your words out. This maiden voyage of Titanic must make headlines. And Captain Smith, because the captain on board a ship is in charge. It's maritime law. and Nobody can influence the captain. Uh, the captain, Captain Edward J. Smith, is played by Bernard Hills, and obviously Jonathan Hyde portrays J. Bruce's mate. He, the captain, kind of says, oh, "Okay, I'll, I'll order the last boilers lit." But this is contra- a controversial scene because it's not agreed upon by all historians. There's eyewitness accounts that it happened from a, a female passenger. I want to say Mrs. Emily Ryerson of First Class. Off the top of my head. Uh, but some historians say, well, if people if they'd have got to New York a night early and people disembarked, they'd have missed the trains, they'd have missed the hotels, they'd have missed you know, the travel arrangements, which wouldn't have made the first class passengers very happy. Well, any of the passengers very happy. And then you've got this beautiful sunset and Jack and Rose are talking about going to Santa Monica Pier. And he basically, the upshot of it is he teaches her to spit, which would have been a big no-no back then for for a well-to-do woman, well, any woman really, it was seen as very unwoman-like, and she starts trying it a little bit, and then they're caught by Molly Brown, the Countess of Roths, and by obviously Rose's mum, and she says that, and you hear old Rose saying, "My mother, everybody else was gracious and curious about the man who saved my life. My mother looked at him like an insect." 
a dangerous insect which must be squashed quickly. And then they go and dress for tea. Obviously, they're going to see Jack. And you see that Molly says to him, well, what are you going to wear? And he kind of goes, well, this. And she's like, oh, I thought so. Come on. And she takes him to her cabin and you see him dressed in what was going to be a suit for her son, which is is, is true. She had a son around, I think, 20, 21 or 19. She had a son around Jack's age in this, in real life. And you see that Jack's more like Molly. You know, they're more alike because Molly's like a, well, self-made woman with her husband. They, you know, her husband struck money. So they they were working class and now she's elite as well. New money, as we said earlier. And then you see, obviously, the scene on the, stop saying, obviously. Sorry, I, I annoy myself because I don't know why I say it. It's like I throw it in his filler. It, it doesn't mean anything. There's no obvious about it. Well, anyway, so there's a scene with the Grand Staircase, which a bit of trivia. The Grand Staircase was widened. They added an extra step uh, because because modern people are, are bigger. The broad, the taller. And you see the clock, which was honour and glory crowning time. And Jack comes down the stairs. Obviously, he's waiting for Rose. And he's kind of, he looks around, he's kind of in awe. And he, he doesn't understand the, the social graces. So he watches the others and kind of mimics them. And Cal actually comes down the stairs and nods to Jack. But doesn't, but it's not in a kind of hello, I know you are. It's just a kind of polite nod. So he doesn't recognise him because Jack goes to shake his hand and he just completely ignores, he just ghosts past him. And then he kisses Rose's hand and Cal realises who it is and says, oh, you could almost pass for a gentleman. So it shows that difference that, they, you know, Cal thinks he's better. And you could see a little bit, I'd never noticed this before in all the times I've watched it, Rose kind of steers Jack around a little bit, almost physically at a certain point. She introduces him to the richest man on the ship, John Jacob Astor. Madeline, his wife, uh, was pregnant at the time. And rumour has it John Jacob Astor opened the kennel because I think his wife gave his wife, was it a Pekingese, gave her like a, a dog, uh, well, their pet, and asked to join her because she was pregnant, but he was refused because he was a man. And you see Lucille and Cosmo Duff Garden and just these different famous character, uh, real-life people who were on the ship, first-class passengers. And then John Jacob Astor says, Jack, are you of the Boston Dawsons? And Jack says, no, the ship of Falls Dawsons, actually. And at this point, you see, he could have lied. He could have been, oh, yeah, I'm, I'm related to them. But he doesn't. He sticks by his guns, even though it might reveal him as not being what he seems, not having any money. But Rose says, you know, the older Rose in narration says, mother could always be counted upon. And she says, you know, how are they, how's the accommodation in steerage? And he's quite funny and says, well, the best I've seen hardly any rats. And he charms the table, basically. He talks about how life's a gift. He doesn't intend on wasting it. You know, you never, you never know what hand you'll get dealt next. And it's quite prophetic, that part, because he's basically saying, you know, thing, things look great right now, but things could go badly very, very quickly, and obviously as they do. And then it all the dinner ends, and Cal says, shall I escort you to the room? And she's like, no, I'll, I'll stay here. Because the men are off to have brandies in the smoking room, which was for men only. And Jack 
says bye to her, kisses her on the hand again, and then he slips her a note, and it says, you know, make it count, meet me at the clock. And he, she goes there. She, you can see her thinking, oh, do I do this, don't I? And she must think, oh, stuff it, I'll do it. And she, she he says, so you want to go to a real party? Then there's a great scene where she goes down to and she, with the stage passengers. They're having bitter. There's Irish music. There's, like, Irish bagpipes. There's people playing the spoons. There's drumming. Well, not drumming. There's, like, kind of a, uh, a bongo type thing. A drum. And there's people from all over the world. There's Swedish. There's Italians. There's Irish. English. People from the Middle East. Americans. And Jack dances. The kind of new dance with your feet. I can't remember what it was called. But it was kind of all the rage on the continent at the time. And they actually dance on the hatch covers. Which is. There were big gaps. Well big hatches. That were cut in the ship. So you could lower like the rich thing. Uh, the rich things. I what you needed to put in a storage. So including the, the car that comes later on. And they realised when they were filming, oh, because they made a massive replica of the ship, oh, people could have danced on those. And, you know, she has a, a great time. And you see the men in the first class smoking room talking about the Supreme Court. And then it switches straight to the men in the third class steerage, you know, and they're doing arm wrestling. Uh, Tommy's wrestling a Swedish guy, I think. Apologies if he's not Swedish. I think he's Swedish. I don't know if I've read that somewhere. Anyway. And, and it kind of makes you think, oh, who, who are the real men? Is there? It's again showing that gulf in class, that, di that difference in what's considered to be proper behaviour, if you like. You know, Rhodes downs a beer and then does a trick where she stands right on her tiptoes, like on her, on her big toes, which looks quite painful. And uh, I put this, I put the pacing is fantastic in this film. I mean, this is about an hour and, oh, about an hour and 15 minutes in. And it flew by probably about as far as we are through this podcast at this point. I did wonder it was going to be a long one. And it, it never, it never slows down. It never starts to drag, which is impressive for a film as long as this. And the next morning, well, Lovejoy finds her, comes down the stairs and sees her dancing with Jack. And then the next morning, you know, she says, oh, he says, oh, I hoped you would have come to me last night. And she says, oh, I was tired. And he obviously says, oh, obviously he doesn't say this, but he says, oh, I bet you are. I bet you're tired, you know, with what you were getting up to. And she says, you'll never behave like that again, Rose. Do you understand? And she says, I'm not a foreman in one of your mills that you can command. I'm your fiancé. And, and he kicks off and he's like, your fiancé? Yes, I are. Yes, you are. You're my wife. And he, he throws the table over. And that was actually an ad lib. Um, it was a, an improvisation by Billy Zane, which is why Kate Winslet looks so shocked. She wasn't expecting it at all. And you can see Rose. And they had etiquette coaches who coached the actors on how women would sit how they would drink tea and how they would stir and all this kind of thing. And Maid Trudy's just stood in the corner whilst this goes on. And, you know, that's the way it was. The maids and the servants were kind of, you know, to be seen but not heard. They would see all this and it wouldn't matter. It Well, it wouldn't matter, to, you know. And Trudy comes over and says, oh, it's all right, miss, because Rose tries to help clear it up. Says, oh, we had a little accident, even though Trudy's been stood in the corner and she's seen everything happen because she would stand there and wait to be asked for certain things. And then 
Rose's mum comes and helps her with a corset for dinner and she says, you, you won't see that boy again. Do you understand? And she's like, oh, stop it, mother. You'll give yourself a nosebleed. And the mother's like, how can you be so selfish? She's like, I'm being selfish. She says, you know the money's gone. She's, Rose is like, Carson, it's gone. You remind me every day. And you could see how the mum's terrified that their belongings would be auctioned. She'll end up as a seamstress because they've got these debts, the need this marriage to, to, to they need the money. And Rose says it's so unfair. And her mum says, we're women. Our choices are never easy. You know, and you get the impression she may be married, she married for the same reason. You you forget arranged marriages were the norm until I don't know when in the West. But it, it served society quite well for a while. Well, for, for, for hundreds of years, as far as I can remember. I don't know a lot about marriage history. It's just like Pride and Prejudice reading all that kind of thing. Which I know is fictional, but anyway. Anyway, um, and there's that, that undertone of class and the struggle between the sexes. And it's perfectly done. It's not overdone. Like it's brilliantly crafted by James Cameron. It, it never feels like he's shoving a message down your throat. But it's there. And you can read into it if you want. Then there's a hymn service where they sing for those in peril on the sea. So this is the Sunday. Jack's refused entry to, to go and see her because he's a third-class passenger now. Lovejoy gets rid of him by paying two of the stewards to get rid of him. Rose gets a tour of the bridge with Thomas Andrews and she says, oh, you don't have no flight boats. For half the people have done the capacity and he says, oh, you don't miss anything, dear. Then they go to the bridge and I think it's Harold Bride gives the captain a, a message from a nearby ship warning about the ice. And the captain says, oh, not to worry. And then there's a scene that's actually replicated from one of Father Brown's photos of Ted Hanek. So he was a, a father who got on, a, father, a, a religious father, a priest who got on at, oh, where did he get on? I think he got on at Southampton and got off at Ireland. But he took a lot of pictures. I've, I've got the collection. And it's a picture of, which I bought in Ireland, funnily enough. I've got like a pack of postcards with all the pictures that he took. And he... A little boy like throws a spinning top, and there's like a grandfather and a and a dad. I think they survived. They got off as well at Ireland, and that is replicated as Jack climbs over this, uh, over like a barrier into the first class area, because they had gates. You couldn't just walk between them. That separation of class again, and he he borrows the jacket and a hat, and then. And anyway, speak a bit of trivia. Speaking about the lifeboats, the Titanic was originally originally designed to carry sixty four. When it was designed by Andrew Andrew Carlyle was one of the designers, and you know it was decided people don't pay to look at lifeboats. And by the regulations of the time, because ships had they doubled and doubled and doubled in size in such a short short space of time that the maritime the law the laws of the countries hadn't kept up. So I think the laws were something like oh. Any ship over ten thousand tons has to carry, you know, twenty life, you know, sixteen lifeboats or whatever. Whereas by the time Titanic came along, the Olympic was the first ship in the Olympic class liners. Britannic obviously was the third. You, I used obviously on purpose that time. That those, you know, Titanic was like forty-eight thousand tons, so that the rules were way out of date. And the Titanic had twenty lifeboats, sixteen. 
lifeboats and four collapsibles. And they barely got those off in time. I think two of them, one floated off upside down. That was collapsible. I want to say collapsible B, but I can't remember if it's collapsible B or A. You know, they, they barely got the ones off they had. So it didn't it wouldn't have mattered. I, mean, I don't personally think it would have mattered if they've had all these lifeboats because they couldn't they, they barely had time to launch. They didn't manage to launch the ones they had. Uh, anyway, so back to the film. He, he he speaks to her in the gymnasium and says, look, I need to know you're all right. I know how the world works. I can't offer you anything. And she says, I'll be fine. Leave me alone. It's not up to you to save me. And then Rose is sat having tea and she sees a little girl being taught by her mum how to hold herself and eat in the first class area. And this little girl, gosh, she must only be about five or six. I think it dawns on Rose if she doesn't get out now, that's who she'll become. She'll become the mother and she'll become trapped. And then she goes to meet Jack at the bow, which is an area where passengers weren't allowed. It was crew only because they had uh, like anchor chains there and things. And James Cameron said that he, he was tempted to put a line in there for one of the officers. He could have put a line in there for one of the officers saying, I'll leave them be up there. But James Cameron thought, you know, it's a film. It's not a documentary. You don't need that kind of that kind of pinnickiness in it. People are just going to be like, why did they put that in? Apart from the few odd people like myself who who know about Titanic and know enough about it to know they shouldn't have been there. But it doesn't ruin it for you by, by any stretch of the imagination. So she meets him up there and says, you know, I changed my mind. And they have a they have a kiss up there, and he gets a stand on the railing and he holds her arms out and she's like, "Oh, I'm flying." So he, it's a bit corny at times, but it is a love story after all. And he sings, "Come, Josephine, in my flying machine," which I mean, James Cameron does his homework. He can't say he doesn't, because that was. Like a, I was going to say a smash hit. They wouldn't know what that was. That was like a hit of 1911, so the summer before. Well, the year, yeah. So that's that made sense. That would be a song he would he would sing to her. And then she's then the ship. It, the camera pulls out as they kiss, and this beautiful sunset and the Titanic just slowly merges back into the wreck. Then it comes, and it obviously it's a monitor screen behind behind up the older rose and she says you know that's the last time the ship ever saw daylight because trivia again the <laughs> i should stop saying how many times have i said trivia the titanic exists in perpetual uh not perpetual daylight perpetual darkness the only time it's lit now is by artificial lights from the submersibles that go down to it and lewis says it's incredible Smith's standing there and he's got the iceberg one and his F in hand, excuse me, his hand. And he's ordering more speed. And Lovett says, you know, the, the ship's too big with too small a rudder. He thinks anything big enough to see, they'll they'll have enough time to turn away from it. Everything he knows is wrong. But obviously, the, the method at the time for ships was to power through the ice fields as quickly as they could, get out of the area where they are. There was no international ice patrol. There was not. There was nothing. I mean, the Titanic steamed further south. It took the southerly route across the 
Atlantic. Smith even steered further than he would normally have done. But this was just a freak year where the ice had travelled further down, f- further south than it had ever been before. And it, it, it there was a lot of what-ifs with the Titanic. It was a lot of things, like any disasters, a lot of things have to, have to happen to create that sequence that, that ends up in disaster. And Jack takes her to, she takes Jack to her stateroom and she's like, I want you to draw me like one of your French girls wearing this diamond, wearing only this. And she takes out a butterfly pin. And it's, that is obviously the last time that she sees it. I'd never noticed that before. So obviously that's why she shows such an emotional attachment. She remembers, you know, she remembers, she remembers him and what, what she lost and the horrificness that she went through. And then he says, oh, over on the bed, the, uh, the couch. And that was a genuine mistake by Leonardo DiCaprio. And Cameron, James Cameron liked it because it showed how nervous he was. And the, the, the hands that draw the picture really drew it with James Cameron. He's the one who drew it. So it's, it, they're his hands, you see. And obviously, this was an incredibly daring thing for a woman to do in 1912, let, let, alone, a, you know, let alone on the middle of a ship. And you see the reactions of the ship's crew, you know, Brock, you know, is it, and, you know, Lewis is hilarious. And then Lewis is like, oh, what happened next? And she's like, sorry to disappoint you, but he was very professional. You know, we, we didn't do it, she says. And she leaves a note for Cal that says, we go back to 1912. And she leaves a note for Cal. And she says, oh, can you put this back in the safe for me? Which he does. And he sees that he puts a diamond back and he, he sees how much money there is and kind of whistles because it's more money than he'll ever see in his life. And then you see Cal asking Lovejoy, where is she? She It's a ship. It's only so many places she can be. You see Titanic steaming through the night. And you see Charles Lightoller, played by Jonathan Phillips, second officer Charles Lightoller. And he, who was the highest, the, the most senior ranking officer to survive. And he's in charge on the bridge. The captain goes to bed and he just orders it, we could, you know, continue. Lovejoy uh, ch- then chases them through the ship, but loses them because they go into like the engine room where, uh, and the, and the guys are like, what are you doing down here? You should be down here. And there's like a magnificent shot of her dress, like backlit by the flames from the boilers. Then they end up on the backseat of a Renault. So this is the point where I thought, oh, see, it is a 90s film. You know, <laughs> a bit of action on the backseat. Um, not to be too crude. And, and that car is, you know, was is really was really there. It was put on the ship and it, it was lost. So it's presumably somewhere there. Still in the hold. You see Frederick Fleet in the crow's nest with Reginald Lee. And first off, Officer Murdoch takes over on the bridge. And basically what happens next is you see, uh, what have I put here? This is my, my writing's horrendous. Oh, yeah. So you see Cal goes back to the room. He finds the note and it's the picture of her naked. And it's got a note saying, darling, now you can keep us both locked up in your safe. And he's like, he's like, I've got a better idea to love joy. And then. He say then they come out. They get chased by the uh, 
Jack and Rose get chased by the stewards. And they end up coming out on the deck below the crow's nest. And they, they start kissing and the, obviously the guys in the crow's nest notice. And then obviously they look up and a few seconds later the iceberg appears. And trivia on the film, it's like 37 seconds or something like that between when they spot the iceberg and between when the ship hits it. Which they reckon is, is the same amount of time it took. Which is interesting. Nice little fact, nice little fact there that you'd never notice. Obviously, F- Fleet rings the bell three times, and he shouts down the phone. Iceberg right ahead, and the, the officer's like, "Thank you." I think it's Fifth Officer Moody. And Murdoch orders harder starboard, which is actually a turn apart because in those days, harder starboard meant turn away from starboard, not turn to starboard. Anyway, oh, so I understand it. And turns full of stern, which is where you you reverse the the propeller. But the problem with this is it it turned the outer the two smaller outer propellers off, and it hampered the turn, so the, the ship didn't turn nearly as much as it could have done. And this is, I mean, the music's brilliant. This is really really tense, and they look to have missed it, and then you see that the the ship starts shaking, the, the ship's wheel shakes, chandeliers shake, and obviously in the steerage passenger, the noise is horrendous as the iceberg scrapes along the bottom of the ship. Even, But James Cameron admitted they over-egged the collision because in real life, many people barely noticed. Uh, most, Some people stayed asleep and were only woken up by stewards. And then you see down in the... Uh, where Jack and Rose just were not long ago that the water starts pouring in then Murdoch orders had to part to obviously avoid hitting the back end of the ship on the iceberg and ice falls on the forward well deck which people play football with later uh, as in proper English football not what what Americans would call soccer and which happened in real life and it's then there's a part where Murdoch closes the electric watertight doors and you see the the men down below run to get out of these doors. But in reality, I mean, it's quite nail-biting, but in reality, you, they could climb out through a ladder. And plus, if you ran through one watertight door, you'd only end up in the compartment next and there'd be another watertight door. So it doesn't make a lot of sense, but it's entertaining for the film. And the captain comes out and says, what's happened? He returns to the bridge and he explains, we've hit an iceberg. And he says, get get the carpenter to sound the ship because they're trying to figure out how, how badly she's damaged. And Tommy and Fabrizio, they've already got water pouring in and the rats are on the floor running away. And you you have this juxtaposition between that and then you see Ismay walking along with his slippers on, on the, the hallway carpet of first class. Then you see the carpenter, the captain, Thomas Andrews, the designer, and Chief Officer Wilde talking about how much the ship's flooded already and uh, Rose and Jack hear this and say this is bad we need to go warn Rose says we need to go warn mum and Cal how bad it is and basically Thomas Andrews gets the blueprints out of the out of the ship and explains that the ship's got an hour two at the most it's, it's going to sink and Ismail's like this ship can't sink Thomas Andrews says, she's made of iron, sir. She can, and she will. And Captain Smith turns around and says, 
I believe you'll get your headlines, Mr. Izmir. And then they're heading back to the room to, to, to warn Cal. And they walk past Lovejoy and he slips the diamond into Jack's pocket. Obviously, the jacket he borrowed or nicked earlier. And that works against him because he tries to say, this is rubbish, they've set me up. And they go, this isn't even your jacket, is it? So he gets arrested and locked up in the Master Arms office, which is back down at the bottom of the ship. Then the the order goes around to put on life belts. Rose gets smacked in the face by Cal. And because because obviously what she's done. Well, he doesn't know she slept with Jack, but he, he pretty much gathers it, I reckon. Because they walk into the room holding hands, so he, and you see that steam starts venting loudly from the boil from the boilers out of the funnels. And Brad and Phillips, the, the Marconi wireless operators, they start sending CQD, which stands for Come Quick Distress. Uh, Captain Smith orders them uh, to start sending it out, tell anybody who responds was sinking by the head and need immediate assistance. And, you know, the, in the first class lounge, the music's still playing. Uh, uh, Andrews walks in there and gets offered a drink. So it's this bizarre... Bizarre thing that you go inside the ship and everybody's acting as normal, whereas there's few people who know that how bad it is. And Rose sees Andrews while she's waiting at the bottom of the grand staircase, and he says to her, "The ship will sink." You know, you remember what I told you about the boat? Don't wait, get to one quickly. But tell only who you must. I don't want to be responsible for a panic. And you see, obviously, Jack's chained below by the Master of Arms, who go who has to go back up to the purser's office. Because loads of people wanted to take out the jewellery and things. And Lovejoy says, oh, I'll stay and keep an eye on him. And he basically punches him in the stomach with a gun and leaves him. Takes the key to his handcuffs and does one. Off he goes. And the, the uh, bride reports back to the captain. The Carpathia uh, Cunard uh, ship is making 70 knots top speed. They'll be here in four hours. And Captain Smith's like, four hours? He knows that. You know, it's getting quite desperate. Though, and trivia: there was no boat drill on the ship. It was one was scheduled, scheduled, scheduled for a Sunday, but it was cancelled by the captain. Uh, I, I don't. We'll we'll never know why. And at this point, like everything that the captain orders is things that are suggested to him. So, Lightoller says to him, "Shouldn't we put the women and children away in the boats?" And he says, "Yes, women and children first. Now, this was misinterpreted by some officers, such as Lightoller, as women and children only. Whereas other officers, like uh, First Officer William Murdoch, who saved proportionately more in his lifeboats on the other side of the ship to Lightoller, Lightoller went with the rule of, which was the original order from the captain of, women and children." first which meant you put the women and children in then if there was space and there were no women and children you'd put whoever on it then obviously you've got to you've got to remember there was no they had electric doors but there was no public address system there was no no radios or anything like that there's no quick way of getting a message to the entire crew i mean the, the titanic had something like 900 crew from what i remember uh, was it 900 I had a lot of crew i know that and you couldn't get a message around them. So it's understandable in the way that how humans pass messages on, that it, they can get changed slightly, that, that that ended up happening. 
and you know the band play on uh, outside, and then it starts. It's much more chaotic below. The steerage passengers are getting gated down there. They're not letting them through the other areas of the ship to get out. Um, and you can see the crews aren't great at lowering lifeboats. There's another bit of trivia. They got original Davids made for the replica ship by the same company. I think it's the, I want to say the, uh, the Welland David company. Then they got them reinforced, but obviously for safety reasons. So they were stronger than, than the original. The boats were an exact replica. So when they put the boats on the, the ropes and got the women in the boats, they noticed that the, the Davids flexed. They actually bent, they actually bent slightly. And they said, God, if, if these ones are doing that, that are reinforced, what would the originals have done? So they they wonder if that could also play a reason as to why some of the first boats went off so ridiculously unmanned. One that had a capacity of, you know, 60 went, went away with 12. 12 people in a boat built for 65. C crazy. But, they, they you know, they start to think at the beginning, for for a good hour, it looked like the ship would 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 go down. People thought the ship would go down a little bit and then settle, but it it everything looked normal. And why would why would you get off a lovely warm ship with a band and music and food and and get into a little boat, leave your husband or your your family behind as a woman and then or and, and child and take your women and take your children and go sit out on the ocean in a little boat? It it, it psychologically. It, Look, the beauty of hindsight, you need to get off and get off quick, but it's not how human beings work. And you see Ruth, Molly, and Rose get into a boat. And Rose say, and, uh, so Ruth's Rose's mother, Rose's mother's like, oh, are the, are the boats seated according to class? And Rose is like, oh, mother, shut up. Half the people on this boat are going to die. And Cal says, not the better half. And she's like, you unimaginable. She says, you unimaginable um, bar steward. She says, well, it's not bar steward, but she says something similar to that. And she says, Rose says, goodbye, mother. And she, she goes. Then he grabs her and says, what what are you off, you know, to to, to go with that gutter rat? And she, she tries to leave and he grabs hold of her and says no. And she spits in his eye and gets away. Which another bit of trivia that was changed in the original script that Cameron wrote. She jabbed him with like a hairpin, but uh, Kate Winslet said, "Why don't I spit in his face?" Because it makes sense with what Jack's been teaching her. So that yeah, Cameron loved the idea and changed it. And then you can see water starts creeping up the corridor towards Jack, and Rose goes to find Thomas Andrews and says, "Where would they take somebody under arrest?" And he gives her instructions and she goes down and she she basically she shouts and grabs the, the steward in the lift, the lift operator, and says, take me down to go and save him. And obviously Jack Jack starts flooding where he is, and he's, but he's chained to a pipe so he can't get away. And Ross finds Jack, and but obviously Lovejoy's taking the key. We know that, but Jack doesn't. And Rose goes to find help, and a steward finds her and ignores her and tries to drag her away from Jack, like drag her up a corridor. And she's saying, you know, you need to listen. And he won't listen to it. It's all right. Don't panic. And obviously she punches him in the face. And he's like, oh, hell, to hell with you. And he runs off. And 
then the bow dip, you see the bow dip below the water. So the ship's really starting to go now. And Rose gets back and she's 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 taking a fire axe off the wall. And uh what have I put there? God knows. Oh yeah. The, the lifeboats, people are like chucking luggage out of them and it's uh, to get more room. It's getting really, really desperate now. Lightall is refusing and re refusing men to go in at all, whereas Murdoch's just filling his, filling his boats as best he can, putting anybody in them. And Andrews goes up to Lightoller and says, why are the boats being launched half empty? And he's like, not now, Mr. Andrews. And he said, no, no, they were, they were testing in Belfast of the weight of 70 men. Get them... Get these boats filled for God's sake. And he says to him, and he starts, you know, Lightoller starts putting more, more, more women in. But at this point, the steerage passengers are still locked down below. And Tommy's one of them. And he says, you know, let, there's women and children down here for God's sake, let us out so we can have a chance. Now, historically, there, there are accounts of people who saw this. But anybody who was responsible for keeping gates locked and keeping passengers in certain areas, they either died in the sinking, which is probably what happened, or if they did survive, they never they never admitted it. Okay. And then Cal starts putting money in his pockets and the, the diamond, and he says, oh, I'll make my own luck. And Lovejoy says, so do I, and he, he's carrying his gun. And Jack and Rose are obviously they say oh, open open the gate and they ram the gate down and Tommy punches the steward which is a great moment because he's just whinging that they can't do this and the scale the scale of the film is, is beautiful they had a big massive replica of the ship they used like a boom crane to go over the top of it the camera would sit on and you get these beautiful shots above I mean this this uh, I dread to think what this film would be like now if it was remade. It would just be a CGI fest that would look awful in about 10 years. And you see Lightoller, the best line of the film for me, he screams, get back, I say, or I'll shoot you all like dogs. It's like, keep order here. Keep order, I say, it's really starting to fall apart now. And apparently he improvised that, the actor. And Cameron had said to him, oh, that was brilliant. Can you do that again? And he said, what What did I say? <laughs> um, and you see then Lightoller loads his gun because he denied he denied using his gun, but privately he admitted it to his family that he, he, he'd had to use it. And when I use it, I mean, he actually took it out of, he took it out and held it. He didn't shoot at anybody. And the music by James Horn is just outstanding. And then, you see, Miss. You see, Fifth Officer Law, who's played by I never get this name right, Yoan Grufford. He plays Mister Fantastic in Fantastic Four. He's been in loads of, loads of um, like TV in 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 the UK. He's been in quite a few films. I can't think of. Oh yeah, he was Hornblower, of course. And you can see that it's starting to get hectic as a lifeboat that gets starts to get lowered on top of another. And people are trying to swamp the boats. And Law has to fire shots into the air. And Cal bribes Officer Murdoch with money. 
And this is one of the things, along with the fact that later on Murdoch shoots two passengers, including Tommy, who try to rush past him, that really upset the the Murdoch family, the descendants of William Murdoch, because he that was a complete fabrication. Though you know, Cameron apologised for it. And I think he gave money to a memorial for it for Murdoch's hometown, but never took out the film. And you know, Murdoch was a hero. There was more people. You know, he, he died. More, his body was never recovered. And more people survived in the boats because he he put men, women, children, he put as many people as he could into the boats. The boats he set off were the ones that were filled to capacity. I think one of them was even over capacity. So he arguably saved the most people. So not great for the, for the guy's memory, but, you know... There were reports that an officer shot himself, but the problem with stories from the Titanic, especially as they got that late into the sinking, that the majority of people who were there would have died. So where did the stories come from? Who, Because there weren't that many. There were barely any survivors who were on the ship that long. You, you were on. The survivors were on, and then they got lifeboats off. That makes sense. I, I warned you this will be a long one. I hope you're. I uh, hope you hope you're comfortable. And yeah, Lightoller, uh, yeah, Lightoller fires his gun as well to try and get people to step back. And he, and on the other side of the ship, he's still not Lightoller's still not letting men on. And on the other side of the ship, Murdoch gets all the women, and then he says, "Anybody, anyone else?" Then for the men. And there's men getting aboard. Ismay jumps in. And Cal stays aboard. And Lovejoy's like, oh, God. And Lovejoy goes with him. Now, Bruce Ismay did do this. He jumped on and he testified later that he, there was no women or children or anybody else around. And, I mean, he was catatonic by the time they took him on the Carpathia. I think he was he was put under opiates, if I remember rightly. Which is like what would be modern-day sedation. And he was crucified in the press as a coward who saved himself when women and children, loads of other men died. And which, you know, what, what, anyway, there's a great scene that they took out of the, that's in the deleted scenes, the collector's edition, I think, that I've got that shows him walking along the deck of the Carpathian, all the widows and all the girlfriends have stood looking at him. And you, you can see the defeat on his face. It's a shame they took that out, but, you know, a film could only be so long. And then there's a scene that's based on uh, Ava Hart's goodbye with her father, who put her and her sister and her mother on a boat. And he never, I think she was six, uh, five or six, and he, he, she never saw him again. And... Jack's saying you need to get on the boat. I mean, this is pretty much one of the last ones to leave. And Cal's like, yes, get on the boat, Rose. And he gives her a jacket. And Jack says, look, go on, I'll be okay. And Cal says, yeah, Jack and I can get off safely. I've got an arrangement with an officer on the other side of the ship. Jack and I can get off safely together. And Rose goes and she's getting lowered down. And Jack says, oh, there's no, you're a good liar. There's no arrangement, is there? And he says, oh, there is, just you won't benefit much from it. I always win, Jack. And then the boat gets slowed away. It's slow mores. There's like the beautiful music. And she's looking up at Jack. 
and she jumps back on the ship to be with him. She can't leave him. And they end up running up what was known as Scotland Road, which is a very long, very long uh, corridor up the ship, past all these people, and they meet at the bottom of the grand staircase. And she says, you know, I, cu- I couldn't go, I couldn't go. And Lovejoy pulls Cal away. But Cal grabs his gun and goes after them. Bit far-fetched, yeah. I mean, though, if someone's running around with a gun shooting at people, I'm pretty sure it would have been historically recorded. But it's a film. And it's a good scene and a good chase. You know, so I think it warrants it, in my opinion. Some people might not like it. And he, he shoots at them, he runs out of bullets, chases them right to the bottom of the stairs, down I don't know how many flights, which is back, which is flooding already. And he starts laughing, and Lovejoy says to him, what could possibly be funny? He says, I put the diamond in the coat, I put the coat on her, and then Jack and Rose um, get swept away by waves, and they get trapped behind a gate. And you see at this point on the deck, there's only the collapsible boats left. And Carl's running for his life with any, with everybody, with all the other men of all the different classes. So class means nothing now. And he finds a little girl crying and like an absolute weasel. He, um, he picks her up and starts screaming, I have a child, I have a child, even though she's clearly not his. Because she's dressed in like second or third class clothes. And he's in a beautiful dinner jacket, you know, dinner suit. And Officer Wilde's like, yeah, go on. So he gets on the lifeboat with her. And this is when Murdoch shoots a man who tries to get past him. And then Tommy gets shoved forward and he shoots him. And the blood runs down the deck towards him and he, he salutes Murdoch and shoots himself off and he falls off the ship. And then Jack and Rose see Mr. Andrews in front of the clock in, I think, the first class area. And Rose is like, aren't you going to make a try for it? He's like, you know, I'm sorry I didn't make a, didn't build you a stronger ship. Good luck to you both. And Thomas Andrew died in the sinking and he, he was last seen by survivors in that part of the ship. But he he also went he went all over the ship encouraging people to put on life jackets, helping people. He, no one knew the ship better than him. He designed it. So he was on, he always took the first voyage of new ships he designed as part of the guarantee group, which was a group of people who would go around and they would almost, uh, I suppose now they would be called, you know, oh, what would they be called now? People who would go on, you know, people who would review, people who would pick fault and say, oh, we need to change this, we need to change that. This plug needs to be higher, this, well, not plug, wasn't electric. Yeah, well, yeah, this, you know, this kind of thing. Who would then feed back to the, the, to the company and say, yeah, we need to, you know, we need to sort this out or change this and this work well. And then you see the, you see um, Benjamin Guggenheim. And he says, you know, we've dressed in our best and I've prepared to go down this gentleman with his with his valet. And you see Captain Smith and a woman goes up to him with a baby and says, Capitaine, where, where do I go? And he, he's, he's, he walks away from her. He, he's just overwhelmed by everything. He he goes to the bridge and it floods and he, he doesn't survive there. He The bridge floods and presumably he's well he's killed they don't know what happened to captain smith he was last seen on the bridge there was a really far-fetched story that appeared in the paper that said he swam up to a baby swam up to a baby he swam up to a well yeah he, he swam up to a lifeboat and gave them a baby and 
but that was never substantiated. And the, you know, the band plays on Wallace Hartley, who uh, they all say bye to each other because the, the water's coming up the deck at them. And Wallace Hartley stays to play Nearer My God to Thee with his violin. Now, historically, they don't know if it was Nearer My God to Thee. It may have been Autumn. It's, it's not known. But it, it, the widely accepted one is it's Nearer My God to Thee, or the widely believed one, I should say. They actually found Wallace Hartley's actual violin that he put that was recovered from his body and given to his wife and it ended up it ended up with wherever it ended up with somebody and they got it tested and it's been accepted as the actual violin that he played on the titanic which is unbelievable that they've got the water damage and everything like that and you see a man and woman in bed and an older couple and this is isidore and ida strauss now these were real real these were the owners of macy's in new york and she refused to leave him she was offered a place in the boat and he he obviously couldn't go and she said no where you go i go there's a deleted scene that depicted this real life uh, incident but it also got got deleted which is a shame but like i said you can't have a film that's five or six hours long you can have a podcast that's that long hopefully not but you know, for a film, you do need to cut cut away certain things, and this is where the ship really starts to take its final plunge. Oh yeah, you see an Irish woman who we saw earlier tucking her kids in bed because obviously they haven't been able to get out. And this lady, I, I don't know the actress's name, but she plays John Connor, John Connor's stepman in Terminator Two. I, I but I can't remember her name, and sings them like a traditional. Irish lullaby, I think it is. About the land of Tyrn and Nog. And the ship starts to take its final plunge and there's this magnificent shot of the whole uh, that goes all the way up the ship of just thousands of people running about all over it. And it, it's all real. I think they edited, edited it together with uh, CGI because the, the ship was obviously built in sections that flooded at certain points. Is that about... It, this film's a masterpiece of filmmaking. Doesn't matter what you think of the script or what you actually think of the actual film, it's an absolute masterpiece. It really is. And it looks so real. It's ridiculous. And they managed to float the collapsible off the ship. Well, they're starting to float them off the ship because it, it's going out. You see uh, Cal's still on a, on a, on a boat. And, it, the, you know, these parts that the... You know, it shows this human tragedies occurring. And Jack and Rose head to the stern. Fabrizio swims away. And there's a slow slow motion as the, as the funnel support line snap. And Fabrizio is, is hit by the falling funnel and killed. And Cal is nearby on a lifeboat. The glass dome is blown in. And this is where the, the destruction really accelerates. The water starts bursting through the the ship's corridors, which was a which was a model shot, which they tilted to match the angle of the ship. That's a that's a beautiful shot. The real stunt performers fall from the ship. It's not free of CGI. Don't get me wrong. You know, and it, the CGI is it's not parts of it. You know, haven't aged fantastically well. But that's more when it's people that have been animated because that was hard to do then. It's you know, it's still not. 
it's a lot better now. But God, you're talking twenty four years ago, twenty five years ago, when the film was actually made. So given how old it is, it's it holds up incredibly well. Well, it holds up well enough that they released it in two thousand twelve with a three D conversion that James Cameron did, and it looked fantastic then, even on the big screen. There's a, a father who gives a, a last final prayer on the stern, which also happened. And Rose says, Jack, this is where we first met. The stern rises and Jack and Rose get on the outside of the railing. The, the, you know, there's people falling and it, it guy falls and hits the propeller. That's quite nasty. And you see Rose's mum and Molly Brown in a lifeboat and they're like, God almighty. And you see this I would say beautiful, but it's awful in it, in the human tragedy side of it. But you see the, the ship stood on end, the whole sterns out of the water. It's based on a Ken Marshall painting who was part of this film as visual historian. And in the scene earlier, I forgot to mention, when Jack steals the jacket, I think that father's played by Don Lynch, who was the Titanic historian for the film as well. And... Bruce Ismay turns away from the he can't watch it. The lights go out. We see Lovejoy clinging on as the ship splits in half. Presumably he's killed. And then the stern falls back horizontal and then flips up on its end and slowly starts to flood and sink. And there's a baker next to Rose and Jack. And I think it's Baker Lachlan. I can't remember his name. But he, he was the guy who drank like a whole bottle of brandy or some such spirits and said that he literally just stepped off the ship as it went down and he didn't even get his hair wet. And you see Jack and Rose pulled under by the suction. Although they reckoned there wasn't much suction from the survivors, who there wasn't many of them, including the baker who said oh, there wasn't much suction because a lot of the ship was flooded. And she loses hold of Jack. She comes back up and screams for him. And there's the... The camera pulls back and it shows that she's among, you know, fifteen hundred people. And it's it's just absolutely wretched. There's people screaming, and a guy who was drowning actually grabs her and pushes her under because she's in a life jacket to try and keep himself out of the water. Cause he's panicking. Jack finds her and punches this guy off her. Then Jack takes her to a piece of doorway. They both try and get on originally, but it flips over. So he he helps her get on and tells her to stay on. And you see as she gets on, he kind of nods to himself. He knows he's finished. He knows he's not going to live, but at least she is. Officer Wilde's near them, clinging to, I think, a chair. And he is whist he whistles his officer's whistle and says, return the boats, shouts, return the boats. And he goes to the lifeboats and you can hear the screams. Molly Brown's like, grabbing our girls. We've got to go back. And Quartermaster Hitchens, who was the guy in chat, who was the guy actually steering the ship at the the Titanic, when it hit, he he browbeats her and says, you know, there'll be one less on this boat if you don't shut that all in your face. And she's like, I don't understand a one of you. It's your men out there. And they, they don't go they don't go back. And then you see Fifth Officer Law, he gets some boats together and he, he moves passengers around so that they can empty a boat. I mean, that's how, that's how unfilled some of the boats were. They could empty an entire boat of people. And it's quietened right down. And a lot of people have lost consciousness. And she says, you know, I love you, Jack. 
And he's like, no, don't, don't say goodbyes. You're going to die. An old lady warm in her bed. Not here. Not this night. Not like this. And she, he says, I'm grateful he's for meeting her. And you, you must do, do me this. And I promise me you'll survive that you won't give up no matter what happens. And you, no matter how hopeless things get, you know, promise me and never let go of that promise. And he, you can tell he's not just talking about tonight. He's talking about the rest, you know, the rest of her life that she goes on. And, you know, he says, you're going to go on and make lots of babies and watch them grow. And she says, you know, I promise I'll never let go. And he's really struggling to keep breathing at this point. His breathing's ragged. His speech is stuttered. And Law comes back with a boat and a torch and he just finds a field of dead bodies. And this is quite a hard scene to watch. And then he's obviously shouting, is there anyone alive out there? And he sees the woman and the baby who went up to Smith earlier, the captain, and he says, you know, we waited too long. And the orchestral music is with like the voices is haunting in this part. Beautiful, but haunting. And then there's a shot from above where Rose is singing, you know, come Josephine. And she can hear these muffled voices because of the call that would affect the way you would hear. And she, she can't shout loudly enough. And she says, Jack, there's a boat, Jack. But obviously he's dead. So because he's been in the water. And she lets go of his hand so she can swim to wild and get his whistle. Because he's obviously no longer moving either. Uh, because the, the people who, who survived, and there weren't many of them, you only survived if you managed to get out of the water. So your body could remain even a little bit warmer. Jack disappears. Well, she lets go of him and he disappears into the water. And she swims over. And she's really weak and she whistles and they go back to they go back and get her. And it switches back to old Rose and she older Rose and she says, you know, fifteen hundred people went into the sea. There were twenty floats twenty boats floating nearby. And only one came back and six were saved from the water. Um six out of fifteen hundred. And you see all the crew on the boat, her granddaughter's crying. Brock's looked wretched. Lewis is crying. All these characters that have been jogging, you know, it's, it's just silent. And she says, you know, that after the, afterwards, the 700, 700 people in the boats, with 705 survivors, had nothing to do but wait, wait to die, wait to live, wait for an absolution that would never come. Now, it, the people in the boats, they didn't know if they were going to survive. Was the Carpathia going to find them? And then you see Ismay on the boat, Cal on the lifeboat, Rose on the, the rescue boat, like covered in blankets. And you see that Officer Law lights a green flare for the Carpathia. And the, the Carpathia is CGI, but the lifeboat in the foreground was the only, was actually filmed at sea. It's the only time they took a boat out on the open sea. And you see on the deck of the Carpathia, Cal goes down and one of the crew says to him, you won't find any of your people down here, sir. It's all steerage. Because obviously Cal's gone looking for Rose and she hides from him. And she says that was the last time I ever saw him. He married, of course, and inherited his millions. But the crash of 29, the Wall Street crash, hit his interests hard and he put a piss in his mouth that year. Or so I read. And she gives her name as Rose Dawson. And then we see she looks up and the Statue of Liberty's there and it's green. But at the time, 1912, it would have still been brown because the copper hadn't oxidised yet. But you can understand why they didn't change it to brown because people would have, modern audiences probably wouldn't have understood 
it's one of those times where the expectations of what an audience thinks they would see rather than it, the reality of what they would have seen at the time uh, overrules the reality. And she says, you know, I don't even have a picture of Jack. He exists only in my memory. And you see the ship, the wreck of the ship descending to darkness as the submersibles leave. And afterwards on the night, there's like a, the I wouldn't say a party, but obviously it's like a farewell thing because they know that they haven't found it. The expedition's over on the ship. And Brock's saying to Lizzie, Rose's granddaughter, you know, I never got it. I never let it in. I studied the Titanic for three years and thought nothing about it, thought about nothing but it. And I never, he's basically saying I never understood that it's not so much the ship, the riches, the beauty. It's, it was a tragedy. It was all those people who lost their lives. So, and Rose, well, all the Rose walks to the stern of the ship and she, she has the diamond and she laughs. She remember, and then you see a flashback of her. Remember, she finds it on, on the boat deck in her pocket and she drops it in at the ocean returns it back to where it should have been and you see her asleep in a bed and it travels across all these frames of pictures you know and she's had an amazing life you see her at santa monica pier on a horse riding like a cowboy she's stood waiting to get on a plane it's pictures of her children and i i personally think she you know she died in this in this scene and that she's reunited with Jack. You know, I mean, I bet, I bet the husband she married later on is well annoyed by this ending, but you know, it, the ship, you go down to the ship and it transforms from the wreck back into how it used to be. And the doors open and she goes through to where the grand staircase is and there's all the passengers there. You know, there's Jack, Fabrizio, Tommy, Thomas Andrews, the crew, the captain, a lot of passengers, Trudy, the maids there. And she walks and meets Jack at the clock. And she she kisses him and the crowd applaud. And it the camera pulls up to look at the dome that that and it goes bright white and then it, it finishes and you see the black title card with and it says James Cameron. Uh, written and directed by James Cameron. And I, I personally believe, I've never thought about it before about the ending, but I believe that that is, you know, the light at the end of the tunnel. I believe she, she's passed on and she's kept her ultimate promise to Jack that, you know, she would have this great life and die uh, an old lady warm in her bed. Yeah, you know, and we... That's the end of uh, this. Uh, that's the end of the film, and that's the end of this review. I thank you massively for sticking with me, w sticking with me through this. It's been a long one, but there's a lot to talk about, and a lot to unpack with this film. If you can review this podcast on uh, podjason.com or the streaming platform that you're listening on, if that's possible, I really, really appreciate it. Thanks again for listening and I'll be back soon with another review. Thank you.